<laughs> For those of you who are new, we don't always do you two uh, during, during our offering. Thanks, Maria. Uh, but maybe we should. I don't know. Can, can we give it up one more time for Jed and the worship team? Absolutely. Although I think, you know, one of the things that I think we need to do for the 11 o'clock service is see if we can find Jed some of those Bono sunglasses. I feel like that would take it to just the right place. Uh, this isn't just a great song that a lot of people know um, from a lot of different generations. This song is kind of transcends when it first came out and has been popular for a long time. It's not just a great song. It deals with something that everyone knows about, which is something that you heard Bree talk about in our scripture reading today, which is the topic of doubt. Now, this song is popular because so many people resonate with this statement, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Whether it's in your personal life, your professional life, your spiritual life, what, whatever happens anywhere in there, a lot of people still haven't found what they're looking for. But we'll get to Doubting Thomas, our story for today, in just a little bit. Uh, so the new Avengers movie came out this weekend, and I saw it, and it's awesome, and I was able to get a, I was able to, to secure a superhero clip, and I just thought it would be good. I mean, it ruins kind of part of it, so I hope that you don't mind if I just, no, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Um, like, don't do this to me, Chris. In honor of the Avengers movie coming out this weekend, I thought it would be fun to show another superhero movie clip, but this is, this is from a superhero movie. This is when I start to feel old. This movie, Batman Begins, came out 14 years ago. Are you kidding me? That's so long. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> Existential crisis over. Um, this was the first of a trilogy of movies following the famous Cape Crusader. Uh, the first one made by writer and director Christopher Nolan. Uh, Christopher Nolan's one of my favorite directors, and this movie was really special to me. Not just because I was a teenager and Batman is awesome, uh, but... Also because Batman's one of my favorite characters. I loved the storylines of Batman, all these different ways that people, um, they're, they're just a bunch of his stories, um, different version of his stories and comic books and different things, and so I was a nerd, and so I loved it. But one of the reasons why this movie was special to me was because moviegoers, most moviegoers at this point when this movie came out, if you were to say Batman, they would think of comic book characters, they would think of some cartoon, they would think of George Clooney Batman, which let's not forget George Clooney Batman that happened in the 90s. Arnold Schwarzenegger was Mr. Freeze and just made ice puns the whole time. Um, or even better, the old school Adam West Batman back in the day. Yes. <laughs> Applause for Adam West Batman. That's great. Um, but you see, Christopher Nolan was doing something very different. These superheroes that he was depicting, they had depth. They were dark, they were gritty, but mostly they were dealing with real problems. Instead of untouchable godlike characters that saved the mere mortals who were, have, befell some you know, problem, they had, these characters had a past. In Batman Begins, Bruce Wayne is a young man trying to cope with the brokenness of his past. He has a vast fortune, as well as an entire Fortune 100 company, and a life of luxury waiting for him. And yet, he is haunted by the events that took his parents from him. 
In the, in the movie, uh, young Bruce Wayne, as a little kid, falls down a well on his, on his parents' property, and he's scared because there's this, cave, there's this cave entrance down there. A bunch of bats fly in. He gets really, really scared. It's like a traumatic experience from him. His dad comes and saves him. The next night, they end up going to an opera, and there are characters in the opera that remind him of bats. They're creepy. Um, and so he gets really freaked out as a little kid would in an opera like that. And uh, he's like, Mom, Dad, we got to go. His parents are like, okay. So they stand up, they leave, they go out a side entrance where they're mugged. And unfortunately, Bruce Wayne loses his parents in that exchange. There's a lot of different origin stories, but that's what happens. And this one, Bruce Wayne grows up his entire life blaming himself for what happens to his parents. The fear that he feels inside, he blames himself for because he thinks it's that fear that ended his parents' lives that took it from him. Remember, this is a dark movie. So <laughs> um, it's maybe not the cheeriest way to start a, night, uh, a service here in, uh, on a Sunday morning, but I think that we can all identify with having some sort of thing that lingers in our past, whether it's a big dramatic thing, whether it's a, um, even just something that seems to pop into your mind just every once in a while that speaks to who you think that you are. Sometimes, at some point, we have to face it. And finally, Bruce Wayne goes to face the very thing that has haunted him his entire life. Let's take a look. Full disclosure, I am so scared of bats. And so if you were to watch me watch that clip, I'm just like hiding behind the drum cage, just like, so anyway, just in a moment of, uh, of brief solidarity. Bruce Wayne has been haunted by his past. He has replayed that sequence in his mind over and over and over again, watching those bats come out of that cave. But instead, what he decided to do was go into the cave that personified this fear. He imagined who knows what could be on the other side of that, and he found an entire expanse beyond that. And he noticed that it, it didn't get him when he went in. It didn't consume him. He went back to confront his greatest fear, and it was from that place, that cave, that had defined who he was for so long that he eventually turned into his headquarters. That's where... He makes the bat cave. In this scene that we just saw, we, Bruce Wayne was confronting this thing that had lingered in his past, placing limits on what he thought he could do for the future. You saw his past entering his present and limiting what he could do in the future. Now, this movie was wildly popular because while most of us cannot identify with being the heir to a fortune, nor can most of us, maybe any of us, but who knows, you probably wouldn't volunteer this information, if you were trained by ninjas to fight crime, most of us can't identify with that as well. But most of us can identify with feeling lost, with losing a parent too early, with dealing with depression, with struggling to relate to others, with being afraid. These are all things that Bruce Wayne, the man, experiences. And this is what this movie brought to this character, showing him as a real, honest person. More than anything, we all can relate to having a past. This was certainly not a one-dimensional character that people were used to seeing from the comic books. 
Now, the reason I show this to you this morning is because we can often treat Bible characters in the same way, in the same one-dimensional sense. We paint people depicted in the scriptures in wide swaths of, oh, he's good, oh, he's bad, oh, he's, he's reckless. Even, even the, the disciples were like, oh, that's the bad disciple. Oh, that's the really good disciple. Oh, that's the disciple that's reckless. We're talking about Peter, obviously. Um, Sometimes we forget that, even though it was a very different time and different place than our own, experts believe that the disciples were likely as young as teenagers when they followed Jesus. Now, I've worked with teenagers for a long time. Good, bad, and reckless are all words that I would use to describe any adolescent, regardless of age or place in history. They're all of them, sometimes all at once. Because so are we. That's what it means to be human, and so were these people in Scripture. The reason that these Scriptures, these Bible stories, have survived for so long isn't that these stories are built on a bunch of shallow characters. Quite the opposite. It's because we have learned to see ourselves in these stories. We've learned that this is our story, too. One really relatable story um, is the one that you heard read for today, which is the story of Doubting Thomas. If there's any question about whether we treat Bible characters in a one-dimensional way, keep in mind, we just called one of Jesus' disciples Doubting Thomas, and all of you knew who I was talking about. We often can treat them as one-dimensional characters. Now, we're in the middle of this year-long ambition called 12 Books in 12 Months, the year of the Bible. And um, essentially what we're doing, in case you are new to this whole thing, uh, the Bible, big long book with very thin pages uh, to make it not seem so long, uh, it has a bunch of different books in it. It's actually a collection of works, and these books were written by a lot of different authors and wide across a large spectrum of time in a lot of different genres. There's poetry, there's lists, there's prose, a lot of different things in here. And we've been going through these different books, these little subsections of the Bible, ever since January. And this month, we've been going through the book of John. Now, the book of John is... uh, just is a gospel. And essentially what that means is there are, there's a group of books named after regular everyday guy names, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they're the ones that tell the story of Jesus. And so this is one of those. Now we've jumped around a little bit in John uh, this month, but we find ourselves here with our Bible reading just like we do on our calendar here in, in 2019. Our passage today takes just a, a place a little after Easter, one chapter in fact. Jesus has been resurrected and is about to appear to most, most of his disciples. The Bible says that his disciples were meeting in secret behind a locked door because they're, listen, the officials of their religion, of their faith tradition, just captured and murdered brutally their leader, their teacher, and their friend, and they're afraid that they're next. So they're hiding behind locked doors afraid that they would meet the same end. So feel free to open your Bibles. We have Bibles in the back right there. We also have some over there. Uh, We really believe in getting the text in front of you. Your brain makes more and better connections. uh, Feel free to take out your phone. I know you won't be tweeting about me. You'll instead be looking up the Bible. So feel free to uh, search John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're starting in verse 19, I believe. Yes, verse 19, a little bit before our scripture reading today. On the evening of that first day of the week, 
when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. The author of John talks about how he just shows up in the midst of all of them, and they were understandably excited to see him. So they're pumped. But there was one particular disciple that was not there to enjoy things. He was like getting groceries at Whole Foods or something. No, in all seriousness, it was difficult at that time for all of the disciples to get together because keep in mind, they're targets at this point. They're one of those people that were leading the insurrection against the people. So he was probably another place hiding. So, some people, when they hear this story, some of us, I've, been, uh, I've fallen prey to this as well, we assume that Thomas wasn't one of the main characters or one of the main disciples because he didn't have a book named after him. Like, he's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and he's not, like, the famous Peter. And so, oh, it's just Thomas. He didn't believe, you know, he's one of those other ones. Keep in mind, the author of John's Gospel makes it very clear that Thomas was a member of one of the 12 main disciples that were selected by and traveled with Jesus everywhere that he went. These guys spent a lot of time together, spent all of their time together. So you can imagine it was pretty jarring when his friends, whose lives had basically been over just moments before, literally hiding in a place where they couldn't be found, distraught as all get out, came looking for him in a very different emotional state. Jump back to verse 24 in John chapter 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means twin because he was a twin. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, let's, a couple of things. There's a lot is made out of this Bible story when we read it. First, let's acknowledge that what Thomas is saying is a pretty reasonable thing. (laughs) his friends, who were just stricken with grief at the complete unraveling of their lives, come to him claiming that they've seen a friend that you, that he, just watched get brutally murdered. He is still traumatized over seeing his friend and leader die in one of the most gruesome ways you possibly could. Just hours before. Like, it had been a couple of days, but, like, that's not enough time to heal from that. He's still processing all of that. It would be one thing if Jesus, they just like kidnapped Jesus and he disappeared. And I'm like, oh, it's just a big misunderstanding. He's fine. But it's, it, it makes sense and it's important that he mentions Jesus' wounds. Because he mentions his, his hands, which is how he was stuck up there. But he also mentions his side, which is how, Rome, which is how soldiers during a crucifixion made sure that the deed was done, if you know what I mean without over-explaining for kids in the room. That's how you were to make sure that it was over. There's no coming back from that. So Thomas mentioning this, he's basically saying, you guys, are you sure you didn't just see somebody else that looked like him? Because remember how he died? There's no coming back from that. I'm going to need to see those scars 
to prove that it's really him. So it makes sense in what he's saying. And second of all, I think there are a lot of people that read this story, and I think there's a certain kind of um, attitude that maybe comes from Sunday school or something where Thomas, we imagine this story with Thomas scratching his head at his friends and going, it's just not possible for somebody to come back from the dead. It's just not logical. I can't believe you guys would believe anything like that. It's as if Thomas has some intellectual difference of opinion with the other disciples that saw the risen Christ. I think it's important to have a little bit reclaiming of this story, a little bit more human. Keep in mind, we're looking at these people not as one-dimensional characters, but as real people who have endured real things. Thomas was one of the 12. It broke his heart when his leader and his teacher and his friend that had helped so many people and was supposed to be this character, this Messiah figure, who was going to take the world back for God's nation of Israel. It was during the highest, holiest holiday. Everything was going great. They had just been welcomed in as kings. And then in the middle of the night, all of a sudden, the opposition steals him in the middle of the night and kills him in front of them in the most brutal ways possible. The point I'm making is this. Thomas, when he's doubting, is not making some intellectual argument in which he disagrees some theological point. Thomas is busy mourning the death of his friend. So naturally, when a bunch of people show up claiming that they've seen him, he gets defensive and he doesn't want to hear about it because he can't experience the loss of his friend again. The wound is too fresh. He can't allow himself to believe that for fear of getting hurt again. Thomas's past is getting in the way of his present and affecting what he believes is possible in the future. This is how our doubt manifests in us as well. When it comes to doubt and faith, it's the same thing. We have plenty of examples of our past dictating what we believe can happen about us in the future. Doubt for all of us is often a heart thing. It's not just something that we think about. Doubt is a heart thing. There's plenty of examples. Some, Some of us have doubt and refuse to believe that healthy relationships can exist because we haven't been in healthy relationships in the past. We're still suffering from a bad one. Maybe you're having trouble believing that you can achieve a dream because there's doubt in your life sown from past failures. Maybe having faith that you're worthy of love or happiness is hard because someone from your past sowed that doubt in you because they convinced you that you're less than, whatever that means to you. We see these things all over how we live our lives and how doubt manifests in our past. But in talking about doubt, we also talk about faith and the power of what that means. But what is faith when we really think about it? You see, the point that I'm going to unpack, but I'd like to suggest to us uh, this chilly morning here uh, at the end of April, is that faith is a step towards God. And Jesus is God meeting us there. Faith is a step towards God, and Jesus is God meeting us there. Because we'll read now the rest of the story. Verse 26. A week later. A week later. Sometimes we think, like, Doubting Thomas was like, no, that's impossible. And then Jesus bursts in like the Kool-Aid guy, and he's like, no, believe, Thomas. No, this was a whole week went on for this. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, which is good, because can you imagine if you missed it twice? Uh, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came. So the doors were locked again. They're all hiding together, still afraid, right? Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord, my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Indeed, the reason that this story is so important is that it teaches us a lot about the nature of doubt and the nature of faith as well. You have to talk about faith when you talk about doubt. And these words are used a bunch of different ways, and we might all have baggage with faith and doubt. And so I think that it's important to just like clear up some misconceptions real quick about the terms of faith and doubt. Just some rapid-fire stuff here. First of all, Doubt is not the opposite or the enemy of faith. Doubt is not the opposite or enemy of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Doubt is a part of being human. Indeed, doubt might play a part in faith as well. Nextly, uh, faith is not the arranging of mental furniture in just the right way so that you might unlock some bonus points with God. Faith isn't some sort of thing where we make sure that we get all of our beliefs just in line in our brain so that all of a sudden it'll unlock the true understanding of the universe. You see, while that might seem like a silly and obvious statement, a lot of us still treat faith this way. We say, if I can just have the right theology, if I just have the best answers to the deep questions about God, if I just use all the right words when I pray, if I just memorize the right Bible verse, then I'll have everything in order with my faith, as if your faith is some room that needs to be cleaned or redecorated or organized. So faith is not just the moving or arranging of thoughts in just the right way. Faith is also not something that you intellectually know or understand. Faith isn't a a brain understanding, especially if it's something that doesn't require any sort of faith at all. This might seem like a silly example, but I think that it, it, it illustrates my point. I have 10 fingers. We can all see I have 10 fingers. I don't have faith that I have 10 fingers. I know that I have 10 fingers. If faith isn't something obvious, which it's not, or something that we understand with our heads, we've talked about what faith is not, then what is faith? Faith instead is recognizing the potentially illogical nature of something, but choosing to lean into that tension and believe it all the same. Faith is trusting in an outcome that isn't statistically 100% certain. Faith requires some sort of step into the possibility of being wrong. Faith that someone will love you, if you have faith in your loved one to love you back, that means you're giving them the permission and the ability to hurt you. Faith that you can succeed also means that maybe you'll fail. But that's what faith is. Faith is an invitation to trust Often that's really difficult because of our past. It's not, faith isn't always an easy choice to make, but it's a choice that we're inviting you to make. Because if it wasn't difficult at all, 
It wouldn't be faith. Jesus doesn't reprimand Thomas, notice. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, Thomas, I heard you're doubting. Here's, here it is, but you're out. Instead, he shows up and he says, he doesn't even say a harsh word about him. He tells him not to doubt anymore. But he shows up and he says, Thomas, come and see. Faith is always an invitation for more. Many of you might have had an experience in church where faith or and maybe the, your relationship with doubt, if you express doubt and it was met with condemnation or rejection, I'm sorry, because that's not how doubt is related to faith. When doubt is expressed, faith always invites us to see more. That's exactly what Jesus did with Thomas. Now, faith used to have to be displayed by some strict submission to Old Testament rules. You have to use to check a lot of boxes to prove your faith. But because God put on skin and bone to sacrifice God's own life for his creation, Jesus brings God's grace, his mercy, and his love to us. So when I say that faith is a step towards God and Jesus is God meeting us there, that means that all we need to do is take one step of faith. Whatever that is, however illogical, we take one step of faith and Jesus meets us where we are. We hear that word and that language in church all the time. God met me where I am. Jesus met me right where I was in life. This is what we're talking about. One step of faith and God will close the rest of the distance. Regardless of where that is for you. Now, Thomas's doubt was fueled by the hurt of his past experiences. My question for you is, what brokenness in your own story has fueled your own doubt in your life? What are those stories that you're telling yourself? What invitation is there to take one step towards faith? What does that look like for you? Maybe for you, if this whole God thing has been really challenging, maybe it's just waking up in the morning and saying a quick prayer. It doesn't have to be out loud. doesn't have to be in flowery language. doesn't have to be in front of anybody else. Just, God, thanks for today. Thanks for that I'm breathing just one more here in this world. Maybe the step of faith for you looks like investing in real, honest friendships with somebody at church. Yeah, like a real friendship at church. Like, like church people actually knowing what's going on in your life. That could look like joining a small group. That could look like just grabbing coffee with somebody and letting them know the real you. Maybe that's learning more, going to new member class or going to core class later tonight, investing and in learning more about this God that recklessly pursues you. Maybe it's signing up to volunteer, to actually using the blessings that God has put in your hands to bless others. That step of faith can look a million different ways. For as many people as are in here, there are those many different new steps that you can take because faith is a step towards God and Jesus is meeting us there. But this is something that we do in community. We just got done with Easter. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. It was the service that we had and it was great. Uh, we had nine services all over Holy Week, um, including Easter. Over 1,600 people were in this room which is insane because this room doesn't hold that many people. But people kept coming. They were responding to the invitation that faith is, and they came and saw. 
We had people here, there were multiple stories of people who had not been to a church service before. They're like, I heard about you guys and I just kind of figured a lot of people showed up so I wondered what this was about. And they heard the story for the first time. Sometimes we think, oh, everybody hears this story. I'm, I'm guilty of that for sure. There were somebody, there were a couple of people who had heard, not heard the story of Jesus before and came and took that step of faith because that's what the invitation is. And that same invitation for them is the same one for us. What this week does taking a step of faith look like for you? Only you can know what that is. But the invitation is to do it. May we have the strength, the vision, and the hope to follow that God that's leading us into something better. Amen. Now, we're going to sing one more song, but the invitation is this. Receive this song as you will, but step, take that next step in worship. Take that next step in faith towards a God that loves you and will certainly never leave you. So let's worship together. We invite you to stand. <laughs>